It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. As you might gather, uh, it's just me this week because Jeff is away uh, on a much-deserved holiday uh, in Mexico. So this week and next week, uh, you've just got me, uh, dear listener, and I'm afraid no Jeff, but normal service will be resumed the week after next. Happy New Year to you all. This is a proper Happy New Year as opposed to our fake Happy New Year uh, from an episode re- recorded before the New Year. Um, it is great to be back with you all. I have come back from uh, South Africa because I just had a, a big birthday, sadly not 40, but um, 50. My family and I were, went to South Africa uh, on holiday, uh, which was uh, brilliant uh, to get away and have a break. This is not my reason to be cheerful, but it was also incredibly uh, moving. And I'd say to people, anyone who gets a chance to go to South Africa, to go to the museums around apartheid in Johannesburg. There are two museums. There's an, uh, an apartheid museum, and there's also a museum called the uh, Lily's Leaf Museum. Lily's Leaf is uh, a pl- place in a place called Rivonia, which led to the Rivonia trial of Nelson Mandela and other people from the armed wing of the uh, ANC. So there, there are these two museums, and they just uh, give an incredibly moving account of the struggle uh, against apartheid in uh, South Africa, and they have special resonance for me because, as some people may know, my um, uh, family were friends with two people called Ruth First and Joe Slovo. Uh, Joe Slovo was the uh, Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, uh, which obviously was banned, and uh, Ruth First was his wife and uh, also a prominent uh, ANC activist. One of my formative childhood moments was uh, meeting uh, Ruth First in uh, 1982, Ruth First and Joe Slovo. There's lots about Ruth First and Joe Slovo at this uh, museum, at both museums, because both of them were big prime movers in the in the struggle. Ruth First was murdered by the South African uh, secret police by a letter bomb in, sent to her office in Mozambique uh, a few months after I met her. And this was an incredibly formative experience uh, for me because, you know, the the idea that politics could be a struggle of life and death uh, and I remember my dad always used to say because she was my she had been my dad's student in uh, the LSE. She would then became a lecturer at Durham, and he said he always said she could have taken a sort of easier life, which was to just stay in the, the UK and not engage in the struggle. And she chose the sort of really difficult path to be central to the struggle and paid with her life. And you know, in a way, it, it put the political struggles we face in some kind of perspective, and also. Just an incredible insight to the uh, what what courage uh, looks like. I mean, all that said, twenty five years on from the end of apartheid, I think it is quite 
striking that the 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 ANC is clearly facing massive uh, struggles in terms of the pace of change, uh, questions of uh, the corruption that there was certainly under President Zuma, and it shows that political change, even when you're doing something like getting rid of apartheid, which which looked like the hardest task political change that comes after is very, very uh, tricky and very, very um, tough. So it wasn't simply a busman's holiday, but um, it, it was also just an incredibly inspiring um, experience, both for me and uh, and my uh, family. Now, I think we said before the, before the break and after the election that one of the things that we want to do in the podcast this year is focus not just on the big ideas, but kind of how the big ideas can be implemented, which, you know, is clearly something thrown up by the election. And this week, we're talking, I think, very relevantly about the issue of rising executive pay. People may have seen in the news that FTSE 100 CEOs had to work until just 5pm last Monday, that's Monday, the 6th of January, the first Monday of the year to earn what the average UK worker will make in the entire year. Uh, they earn an average of three and a half million pounds a year, which is 120 times uh, the average worker. And the UK has one of the highest gaps between CEO and average worker pay of any country in the world. And this has risen sharply uh, in recent decades. When Theresa May was standing to be leader of the Tory party, she suggested she'd make this a key issue, arguing there was an irrational, unhealthy and growing gap between the pay of workers uh, and bosses. This week, the the chief of the IMF of the International Monetary Fund, and this is quite, in a way, surprising, called for tax hikes on the wealthy uh, to reduce uh, inequality. Uh, she said that inequality had become one of the most complex and vexing challenges uh, in the global uh, economy. We're going to be talking to Deborah Hargreaves, director of the High Pay Centre, about the problem of rising executive pay and what we can do about it. And then academic Ewan McGahey about one of the proposed solutions, representation of workers on boards, and what we can learn from our history about how to make it happen. Plus, I'm really delighted that we're going to be talking to a fantastic novelist and author of a book called Reasons to be Cheerful, Nina Stibby. My reason to be cheerful, and I freely confess that I've become a parkrun bore, is that I kept to my New Year's resolution of doing 30 park runs last year. Um, I did my last one on uh, Christmas Day, which completed the 30s. I was very pleased to have kept to a New Year, my New Year's resolution, which uh, is certainly not always the case with New Year's resolutions uh, that I make. And I even did one uh, in the heat in Pretoria uh, in South Africa to start the year. Um I'm going to try and do at least 30 this year, maybe even 35, and to get my time under 25 minutes. But we'll see whether that uh, actually uh, happens. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Deborah Hargreaves, who's the director of the High Pay Centre, uh, works as a journalist, a business journalist at Tortoise, um, the online slow news organization <laughs> stories behind the news stories behind the news and author of our chief executives overpaid deborah thanks so much for joining us thank you let's just start with the basics what what is the current state of executive pay in the uk and, and how has it changed over recent decades so it went down slightly last year which is quite interesting so median pay for um the FTSE 100 chief execs is now three and a half million pounds mean pay sort of average pay 4.7 million but that is a slight decrease from the year before so we might invoke some reasons to be cheerful from that but I don't know if that's part of a longer term trend because these pay rates they go up and down tending to be um, related to stock market and share prices. And just so we get it in our heads what's the sort of pay ratios broadly speaking now between the sort of top and the average or the top and the bottom uh, compared to what they would have been 30 or 40 years ago? Oh, well, now um, we're talking about, you know, 120 times average pay. Whereas if we look back to the 1980s, say, it would have been sort of 20 times, you know, it's grown a huge amount. So it went up a lot in the 90s. Um, and the pay gap has really opened up in the past 10 years. Because since the financial crisis, what we've seen is top pay has really carried on going up. Um, but pay for everyone else has been held down. So there's this big gap has opened up. And, and as we all know, pay for the average workforce person has not got back to 2010 levels yet. And you've obviously written and thought about this a lot. 
what, what's the, what's the reasons behind it? Is it because the chief executives all all got better? <laughs> six times greedy, better, more greedy, six times maybe. better, or something else? <laughs> well, it's um, a part um, of several economic trends. So we've changed the economy a lot in the past forty years, and we've become much more American, much more winner takes all type economics. Don't forget the force of unions has also been weakened. So unions are not as involved in pay bargaining as they were. And also um, unions are not holding companies to account because they don't have that clout anymore. So there's really actually been nothing to hold back runaway executive pay. And there's been this justification that we're in a global market and we need to reward people to stay here which isn't really true. Very few people at the top of companies will suddenly go abroad, um, particularly to America, because they've had a better pay package. We've also become very shareholder orientated. So we have a lot of um, benefits going to shareholders. Many executives running companies would say they're running the company for the benefit of the shareholders. And dividends, share buybacks, all those things that reward investors and reward shareholders, they've gone up hugely in the past um, few years. They've rewarded shareholders to the, the detriment of their own employees. And one thing just to pick up on what you said, there is an interesting connection, isn't there, which people might not see as intuitively kind of obvious between unions who are bargaining for the general workforce and the strength of unions and top pay, Mm. that there have been a lot of studies on this, haven't Mm. there, which show that the weaker the unions, not just the lower the pay for employees, you know, in the general, in in the company in general, but but the higher the pay of the top executives. Yes, absolutely, because there's no one holding them to account. So I went to give a talk in Sweden um, a couple of years ago, and I said, well, of course, the pay ratio in the UK is this, and they all earn five million pounds. And one guy said, what on earth are the unions doing? And I said, well, you know, that is the point because they have collective bargaining. In fact, they have cross-sector bargaining in Sweden where the unions um, bargain on behalf of an industry, not just a company. How much of this is to do with culture? You know, the, sense, the sort of end of shame in a way that, that you know, in era, an era gone by, executives would have been anxious about paying themselves too much and that that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, is this, you know, is it cultural? Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It is partly cultural. There's a sort of bragging rights about it almost. When you talk to top executives, well, some of them anyway, when you talk to them privately, a lot of them will say, of course, the system is unsustainable. It can't go on like this. Of course, it's too much. But very few of them will put their head above the parapet and say that publicly. And they will say, well, you know, I can't really say it. You know, it's it's sort of almost like letting the side down. But they're very competitive people as well. So they want to compare themselves with each right. other. And we have got this culture within companies, this sort of competitive culture. We've become a lot less collaborative and cooperative within our corporate culture. And are we exceptional in this 120 times ratio, the Americans obviously probably a bit worse. Are there any examples from around the world which are better? So the Americans are 365 times right. <laughs> to average. Right. So they're the highest. Um, and we're sort of coming up behind them. Europe is behind us. So the culture in Europe has tended to be um, a lot more cooperative, but they are catching up with us. So it's America sort of pulling everyone um, up behind them. We're interested in the podcast on how, what are the circumstances that enables big change to happen? To what extent do these other countries that have lower pay ratios, is it a sort of different institutional setup, a different history that makes it possible, which sounds a bit fatalistic and it's not meant to be, but, but just trying to understand the sort of circumstances and to what extent... Is it from sort of policy that's been made over time? We've made choices and we've made very interesting choices um, and they've all led us in this direction. So we've made a choice for a very deregulated economy. We've not protected workers' rights as much as we could have done. We've emasculated the unions and we've we've created this winner-takes-all culture where um, everything flows to the person at the top. And just before we get on to sort of what can we do about it and what is being done about it, I think it's kind of important for our listeners, you've thought a lot not just about the issue and why it's happened, but why it matters. Mm. 
is it the politics of envy to be sort of begrudging these wildly successful chief executives, you know, their just reward for creating lots of jobs? To, you know, if that's the sort of straw man or devil's advocate position, what, what would be your response be? Well, it's very economically inefficient to reward people at the top to the detriment of everyone else. Because if you spread pay more widely throughout the economy, people on lower incomes will spend it in the economy and we'll have a better um, outcome all round. People at the top tend to hold on to it, save it or invest it in the stock market. But also... Um, what you're doing now is paying top bosses in shares. So you're giving them a huge chunk of shares and a very short-term incentive to increase that share price because they're meant to think like shareholders. But it's a very short-term reaction. So they're looking at the markets in three-monthly bouts, you know, quarterly bouts. And that means they're looking to influence that share price, push it up. And one way um, to push it up is to cut your costs at the company and keep down wages, which is... So it's sort of bad, it's part of the short-termism of the economic yeah, system. It and is. Just on your point about there being, you know, the chief executive pay, it's, it's inefficient. I mean, presumably some people would respond by saying, well, look, there aren't that many chief executives. So even if you spread the pay of the chief executives around all the lower paid employees, it's not going to make that much difference, is it? Yeah, but they're pulling people up behind them. Don't forget, there's a layer underneath. Right. So this is one reason I had a conversation with the chief exec who said he wanted to cut his pay, didn't want to have this big package. And he went to the remuneration committee and they said, oh, yeah, but you're going to throw all the differentials out. So all of his directors would be affected by that. And that's the layer behind. So there's, it's not just chief execs. The FTSE 100 paid um, directors £2 billion last year. And the chief execs were like a quarter of that. So it does affect more people. So that's, if you like, the situation and why it matters. Now, there is sort of, but people may find it hard to believe, but there is something happening there is. in April. Yes. Which we can discuss how much bigger difference it will make. But tell us what is going to happen in April and then let's come on to why, whether that solution is enough and what else we might be doing. Companies now have to publish the ratio between top pay and median workforce wages. So it's not top to bottom, it's top to middle. Um, and they have any company with more than 250 employees now has to publish that. And it also has to explain the reasons for that ratio and discuss fairness, um, why this is seen as fair. Whether that's going to actually change behaviour or not, I don't know, but it will give us quite a lot of interesting figures to look at and it will also mean that some pressure can be put on those boards if there's a massive pay ratio what else can be done do you think i mean if you if if because this is a sort of limited step this pay ratio is just mm. publishing the information Tell us about the suite of possibilities of what else we could do. Well, you could use the pay ratios in interesting ways. So, for example, Jeremy Corbyn did suggest in last year's manifesto that for public procurement, um, companies would need a ratio of, um, I think, 20 to 1, he said. So, I mean, you can use it to reward companies with lower pay ratios by giving them procurement contracts, for example. I mean, that's a very controversial idea. But um, one thing I would like to see and have been arguing for many years is to see the inclusion of workers on company boards and on remuneration committees because you tend to get very similar people on a remuneration committee. They're all very comfortable with high pay. They all have come from a high pay background. And if you had a little bit of common sense injected into that discussion, there might be a bit more pause for thought about awarding these massive packages. But I mean, just all round companies with employees on the board they just function better you see it in germany it just adds to um the discussion we don't tend to see much discussion between directors and the workforce in the uk there's a huge kind of barrier almost so how is pay set at the moment and how would workers on boards make a difference so the pay is set by the remuneration committee, which is a subset of the board. So there's usually about four people on that, but they're all on the board as well. And they would have discussions about what the appropriate performance measures are for the executive and what, 
you know, how it compares with other companies. There's this top quartile thing, isn't there, that everybody tries yes. to get into the top quartile, and that seems to just sort of bid everybody up it just, all the time. Not everyone can be in yeah, the top yeah. quartile, but, I yeah. mean, it's effectively saying that they have no faith in the chief yeah. exec unless he's in yeah. the top quartile. And also he knows as well, well, it's, it's mostly a he, he knows um, how he compares with people at other companies, and so, you know, they're very competitive people. So if you had employees on the board, you know, more than one, maybe two or three you could have um, one or two on the remuneration committee they would be able to say well hold on a minute the workforce hasn't had a pay rise for years why is this award being set you know and what are the um, targets to reach or what are the performance measures we're using and, and what about shareholders generally because there is the, there's the sort of boards there's the law but there's also shareholders i mean how effective are shareholders at holding top pay to account they're pretty useless actually right. <laughs> i mean because they really should be holding them to but account they don't really have any interest in doing so is no. that right no because they're also paid really well themselves i mean they don't want to rock the boat i mean if you look at the past few years of sort of 96% of uh, pay awards have been voted through and if there are some shareholders who are working really and these hard. are institutional these are institutions yeah big institutions like pension funds and pension others. funds yes a lot of our institutions are now based in America so they don't care they think it's quite restrained here and um, and so they're not you know they do have the tools but they're not really using them Theresa May did think about doing worker representation i think on boards not just on remuneration committees but backed off yeah she did yeah what what is the sort of story behind that well i just think she faced a corporate backlash i mean inevitably whenever you introduce anything um that would involve um more regulation for companies that they would always kick back at it i mean look at how they argued against the minimum wage and that's had really no material impact on them at all so i think there was feedback and and she wasn't brave enough to go ahead with it give us a sense of the degree of self-knowledge there is in companies about this issue i mean in other words if there was a corporate boss listening to this conversation would they say you were a loon? Would they say they understood, but it was all much more complicated? What, what, is, is it the same as it was before the financial crisis? What, what, give us a sort of barometer of this. I think there is a sense that trust in business has really been undermined by this, and that's particularly acute since the financial crisis. I think you'd get a variety of opinion among chief execs. I've done a lot of um, executive um, audiences, and there's a lot... You basically of- just tell them off. Well, there's hostility, you know, they tell me off, you know, there's a lot of hostility out there. But there are lots of people who will privately admit that this is the right direction to be going in, and that we need to show restraint, particularly now when the economy's not doing so well. What would the role of taxation be in this? Because in a way, we the, the worker representation on the boards or the pay ra- or the remuneration committees, the pay ratios, they're all what I sort of infamously call pre-distribution. I mean, they're sort of yeah. trying to deal with it at the sort of, you know, kind of before the, the pay is kind of made. What about taxing it? You know, could, could hi- higher tax rates on the riches make a difference to their incentives to pay themselves? Do they just get around that? What, give us a sense about that, or your uh, view on that. My view is that we should have much higher tax rates. And I just don't think they would even notice I mean, often, you know, when you're paid that much, you would never even notice the extra tax going out of your um, pay. I just think the whole debate about tax is wrong and that we need to reward people for paying higher taxes. And we need to say, look, higher taxes buy you a civilised society and, and, and a great infrastructure that we can all use and we can all buy into. And we need to catch that in, you know, rewards for um, maybe we could give a kind of, you know, medal for people who pay the most tax. Yeah. And just it's such a negative debate. It needs to be framed completely differently. And, and people need to feel good about themselves for paying a lot of tax and not want to avoid it. We have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, and Jeff is obviously not here, but in his sort of honour, I will ask you the question, if you were Minister for Executive Pay, um, uh, Corporate Governance, Business Secretary, what, what, tell us the things you would do. 
For a start, I would bring in higher tax rates and I would try and encourage a better um, discussion about tax, as I just mentioned. On corporate governance, I would be very interested. And this actually was in the Labour manifesto in seeing the kind of German style corporate governance um, with two tier boards. And just explain what that means. So they have an executive board that runs the company, but then the board that actually um, does all the major decision making is half made up of workers from the company and half made made up of shareholders and its chairman chair i should say usually is a man he's got the decisive vote if there's a um deadlock but generally they they do reach consensus and they make decisions on executive pay and they would also make decisions on important strategic issues as well it tends to lead to a much more collaborative working culture in germany and very successful companies as well so i would like to see corporate governance changes in that direction if people sort of listening to this are kind of angry about you know the fact that this is still going on, you know, more than 10 years after the financial crisis. The, the sort of uh, pay may have gone down a little bit over the last year, but it still seems to be kind of going up in general. What can be done? I mean, what, what can they do? Does the High Pay Centre have campaigns? Are there other organisations campaigning on this issue? Yes, people are campaigning on equality. And I actually now I feel quite disillusioned with politics as a top down solution. I feel that more has to be done from a grassroots point of view. People within companies could campaign against their own chief executive's award. And actually, the company has to consult its workforce on pay now, has to show that it's spoken to people or at least done a survey or something. Um, People could contribute to that. Okay, well, look, Deborah Hargreaves, I'm sure I can say for Jeff in his absence that you would have got the job. (laughs) Uh, as Minister for Restraining Executive Pay uh, and making it fair. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it is my New Year's resolution to be more cheerful. So uh... Excellent. (laughs) To talk about the deeper background to this issue, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Ewan McGahey, who is Senior Lecturer in Law at King's College London and expert on corporate governance in the UK, Germany and the United States. Thanks so much for joining us. Very glad to be here. In fact, this is now not our first meeting because you I, you were saying just before the microphones went on that you um, you came to see me in a hustings in a pub when I was running for Labour leader. That's right. And asked me about corporate governance and I probably gave you a hopeless, hopeless answer. Well, it's becoming a bigger and bigger topic now. It perhaps wasn't back back then. That's a nice excuse to make for me. I know you voted <laughs> me. So, so uh, thank you. Start us off. Talk about how our corporate governance in the UK influences executive pay and and how it's changed in recent decades and so on? Yeah, sure. So every company has a constitution uh, and Parliament sets models for company constitutions. Paragraph 23 of the model articles for companies says directors may uh, be paid such remuneration as the directors shall determine. Uh, So law sets who controls executive pay. And since roughly the mid-80s, the law has said that essentially directors can pay themselves. So we see similar rules uh, in the United States, in particular in Delaware, which is where all the big corporations incorporate. But so long as directors can pay themselves, it's quite likely that they're going to pay themselves lots of money. Now, some people, including Deborah, propose representation of workers on boards as a solution to some of the problems of executive pay. What is the history of this so-called, I think, co-determination in the UK context? It's a great question and a very big question. Yeah. Uh, So uh, we actually have one of the oldest traditions of co-determination, so the right of workers in law to vote for people who are on a board of directors. Uh, Probably the oldest act is the Oxford University Act of 1854, uh, shortly followed by the Cambridge University Act of 1856. And that said that the governing bodies of universities uh, had to be voted in by Uh, by staff members. Now, most universities in the UK have some form of representation for staff. Uh, Probably Scotland uh, is the most recent act. They've got a Higher Education Governance uh, uh, Act of 2016. Um, And so you have these pockets of the UK economy uh, which did have worker representation rules. If we go forward a little bit, uh, Lloyd George and Winston Churchill introduced one of the next big acts, the Port of London Act of 1908, uh, which put a worker representative on the board 
board of the Port of London Authority. Wow. Uh, and then there was a debate, really interesting, after the First World War um, in the early 20s about getting worker representation on the boards of railway companies. But what happened there is that it didn't go through because management didn't want anything uh, and unions wanted just nationalisation of the railways and they, they couldn't find a consensus. Um, at the same time, Germany went forward with, with rules. Th- then what happened is, you know, in the post-war period, um, Labour came to power in 1945 and started nationalising, progressive nationalisation of the means of production. Um, but the model for corporate governance in public bodies uh, really followed what Herbert Morrison thought was best. So the Morrisonian model of corporate governance. Herbert Morrison was the leader of the London County Council. Um, he's Peter Mandelson's granddad. Um, and so he thought that only experts should be on the board of public uh, public companies or, or nationalised bodies. So, you know, uh, rail and steel and, and coal, um, it should be experts in Whitehall that appoint the directors. And, you know, maybe we would consult the unions, maybe we would consult consumer groups, but we wouldn't uh, allow voting rights. Now, um, experiments continued up until the 70s, and Labour proposed in, uh, in 1976 in the Bullet Report to have all companies um, have worker representation. But in the winter of discontent, it all fell apart. Thatcher retrenched all of the worker directors that existed, like at the post office. Um, and, you know, the Major and Blair governments weren't interested in doing anything So else. that's fascinating. So, so there's the sort of national, the, the kind of focus on nationalisation, and even within that nationalisation, a sort of uh, you know expert rule. Yeah. How would that be then different from Germany or Scandinavia? They were they had these they they had less of a nationalisation tradition maybe and more of a co determination tradition. Is that right? Yeah. So after World War One, um, Britain thought that. Uh, we should establish an industrial democracy. And there was basically a cross-party consensus. So it was actually a Conservative Minister of Transport that proposed uh, worker representation on the railways. But it was... Chris Grayling's ancestor. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's it's really... uh, I mean, it it just shows that there can be cross-party consensus about these issues. Uh, It was a Liberal government, uh, uh, or Liberal Prime Minister, rather, that um, was interested in it. Uh, as well, but the main model of industrial democracy at the time in Britain was collective bargaining. You have labour and capital bargaining together, and supposedly you get this sort of collective laissez-faire system that gives voice at work. Germany said after the First World War there should be legal rights to vote at work, and, and interestingly, uh, back to cross-party consensus um, after well Hitler abolished co-determination rights in the 30s, uh, but it was brought back in the uh, late 40s and 50s by a conservative. German government. So the co-determination acts in the late 40s and 50s, well, first they were collectively bargained by the unions, but then they were put into law by a conservative government. And now the really important thing is that we've got a majority of OECD countries that have some form of votes at work. Um, The UK, therefore, is really the exception. And now uh, the UK is an outlier. Yeah. Um, Although, as I say, I don't want to pretend that we don't have any tradition because we do at universities. When people have a suspicion that all this co-determination workers on boards malarkey is a very continental tradition and not a sort of British tradition. That's just a sort of accident of historical circumstance and and what unions and others argued for and the Labour government did rather than anything else. In other words, it's not inevitable. Certainly not inevitable. So that is a very, very clear and helpful explanation of the sort of differences. How do those differences across countries play out in the sort of impact on executive pay and other issues? In other words, does it make a difference? So it does make a difference. So uh, where you see um, the most concentration of power in the hands of boards, you see the highest executive pay, and that's basically America and Delaware. Um, Britain is not far behind, but we have a very shareholder and director-dominated system of corporate governance. In Germany, executive pay has been rising because of international competition. Uh, you know, everybody wants to uh, be, be paid more yeah. like, you know, their mates and their, uh, in their competitors. Uh, but the levels of inequality are lower. So it does have an effect. But you, you really do need to have rules in every system. You know, if you've got global, uh, a globalized economy and globalized competition, you need to have uh, similar solutions everywhere. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, as I say, a majority of OECD countries now have some form of uh, rules for votes at work. And two American presidential candidates are proposing it. 
You said uh, that there was a cross-party consensus for worker representation on boards. Did that just sort of erode with Labour after 45 having a focus on other things or was it broken somehow? What, what, what's your what, – where did that go, that cross-party consensus? <laughs> Uh, so, so it was a cross-party consensus between the Liberal and the Conservative parties. Uh, there were people within the Labour Party in the 20s, um, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, for example, uh, that did support co-determination rights. These are the early fa- the fans of the Fabian Society, for those who don't know. Yeah. That's right. So, so Sydney Webb drafted Clause 4 of the yeah. old Labour Party constitution, calling for uh, common ownership yeah. of the means of production. Um, and they believed in... Um, industrial democracy, including votes at work. Uh, But there was always a lot of scepticism amongst other parts of the Labour Party uh, because unions had seen again and again um, management proposing share schemes, employee share schemes, which were a way for workers to, you know, have... um, uh, nominal share capital, uh, maybe a few votes attached, but no real, uh, no real voice. And so there was often a feeling that co-determination schemes, because of the bad name that share schemes had given, uh, being that, that these were just going to be a sham. Uh, the difference today is that we have such good international data and, and evidence, and the union movement um, is very aware of how things work. Um, in other countries. So the the TUC um, has been fully behind co-determination plans in the UK. And there's also, you know, a lot of people in the city who think that it wouldn't be a bad idea to have worker representation. We have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, which is involving Jeff as a benign ruler. Uh, he claims benign. Um, if you were to be made, maybe with Deborah Joint, sort of a minister for corporate governance, uh, Secretary of State for Business, What's the first things you would do? Well, you, you don't need to be in government. I mean, if we could find a member of parliament, for instance, you know, for example, you, for example, you could even introduce a private members bill. And I've actually got one right here oh, for that's you. Really kind. Here's called, one you called, made earlier in, in good Blue Peter earlier. tradition. Called the Democratic Society With Act sticky of, back plastic. Of, of, of uh, 2020. So, you know, the three main things uh, that I would suggest that any member of parliament could do uh, is, number one, you could legislate for uh, every worker – Uh, having a minimum percentage of voting rights in the general meeting uh, of every company or every workplace in the UK. So uh, votes for who is going to be on the board of directors or a governing body, you know, regardless of the kind of firm, whether it's a company, a partnership or anything else. Uh, The second thing that you could do uh, is you could say that uh, every capital fund has at least one half of the representatives elected by workers. So that's particularly pension funds, but also any kind of mutual or insurance fund. And the asset managers don't vote on shares unless they are following instructions. That's really important. Um, and th- the third thing is that you could ensure that in every public service, uh, that not just workers, but also uh, perhaps the consumers and other stakeholders have a voice. So like in universities, uh, often students have the right to vote, patients in the NHS, passengers in transport services. Um, rate- so the state as well as the private sector. Well, well absolutely, because if markets fail, then they're not representing the consumer interest properly. So you, you need some other kind of way for consumer voice to be expressed. Um, so you find this in you know energy companies, water companies uh, throughout Europe. Ratepayers have some kind of voice. And I think if you did those three things, votes at work, votes in capital, votes in public services, you'd have a democratic society and a democratic economy. Very good. We will we'll try and find an MP for you. Uh, uh, Ewan McGahey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So what do I think uh, following that discussion? I would say that high executive pay is, is, is like a symptom of a broader set of questions about the way we run our economy, a very short-termist, shareholder-focused, uh, narrow uh, way of running companies. And it's not simply that it's unfair, but it isn't good for productivity or good for our economy. And I thought that very much came through in the conversation with you and McGahey, that the the advocates of this aren't doing it just simply for reasons of equity, but they're doing it for reasons of it. It, it would be it would be better for us uh, as a whole if we had more worker involvement, more co-determination. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that listening to the history, that this is something that 
maybe Labour and the trade unions never took seriously enough or didn't in our history take seriously enough. We were focused on nationalisation, but less focused on this question of if if companies are in the private sector or even if they're nationalised, uh, how are they going to be run? How are they going to be run in a way that involves workers? And, and executive pay is, if you like, the the kind of outcome of that way of running your economy and that and that and those 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 particular uh, traditions and then i think the other thing that is important in this is culture that clearly taxation unions and that really came through strongly the weakness of unions has a real impact on executive pay but but also uh, a culture which used to be that there was restraint and now doesn't involve that kind of restraint and the question is it's hard to change the culture uh maybe part of the way that cultural change happens is with the stronger unions uh taxation and all of those other things contributing uh to a different culture and creating uh pressure but it's it's certainly an important issue because it it isn't just symbolic it does go to the way our economy is run reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you've got thoughts on high pay, um, what you've heard on today's episode, or suggestions for future episodes, if you're a top executive who thinks that we're being unfair, uh, please do get in touch. You can go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, and you can uh, email us. That's what Simon Beckett did with a really interesting uh, email. Hi, Jeff and Ed, long-time Long-time fan of the show. I've never had calls to get in touch before, but where do we go from here, which is our post-election episode, sparked some thoughts. Ed said he wanted to preserve the idea that big ideas matter. You touched on the introduction of the weekend in the 19th century and the foundation of the NHS. That made me wonder whether you'd consider a spin-off or mini-series like Knott's Landing, specifically discussing big radical ideas from the past. He didn't say like Knott's Landing. That's a historical reference for those of you uh, who are too young. Uh, I'm sure there's a rich history to explore of big ideas that were successfully implemented, reminding people of great victories that have been won and could also give us renewed hope for the future. You could discuss how the idea began, how momentum grew, how the proponents took the idea and made it reality, and most importantly, perhaps transferable lessons we can learn. Along with British examples, one from US history could be the Compromise of 1790. Yes, I learnt it from the musical. Alexander Hamilton won over Southern opponents to his proposal for a US national bank by offering to situate a new US capital close to their home in Virginia. Compromise has become a dirty concept in the UK recently, with ideological purity seeming to be prized more highly. Perhaps we should study and admire those who found a solution which pleased people on different sides of a debate. I'm sure there'd be an audience for this, and there's no better pair than you two to deliver it. All the best, and thanks for 100 great episodes. Simon, thanks, Simon. It's a really interesting idea, and we will definitely discuss it. This one comes from Jonathan Bates. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I need to thank you for introducing white chocolate and miso cookies into my life. I think I found the cafe in Stoke Newington that you get them from and have become a regular. I was so happy to hear that Empire State of Mind was your number one episode for 2019. Much like Reasons to be Pirate has made me reevaluate my own beliefs in education for the better. On the back of Jeff's recommendation ad for The Sun King, I signed up to Audible and spent my credit on Akala's native audiobook, which has changed nearly all that I thought I knew about racing class in Britain. I couldn't recommend the book highly enough, either as a book club choice or a guest whole episode of the podcast. I think we are bidding uh, for Akala, Jonathan. He's an incredibly captivating and inspiring man with a truth of colonialism that must be told to a wider audience and will no doubt make a lot of your listeners reevaluate their privilege, but also leave them feeling cheerful that decolonization has taken place and there are people such as Akala telling this truth and that the positive influences to his life exist. Keep up the amazing work, John Bates. John, thank you so much for that. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Now, in our cheerful person slot, I'm delighted to say we are joined by Nina Stibby, author of 
reasons to be cheerful. Yes. You yeah. stole it from us. I know. We stole it from Ian Drury. No, yeah. didn't you steal it from David Byrne? Jury. No, no, David Byrne stole it from us. We Did were doing you? the podcast before David Byrne really? started doing Reasons to be Cheerful. Yeah, because you know about that. Yeah. 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 No, we really annoyed at him, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. yeah. So he started, but all of us are forgetting Mark Steele. Well, I'll tell you who else we're all forgetting is Dave Gorman did a show called oh, Reasons I to don't... be Cheerful at the Edinburgh Festival oh, before Mark Steele that's ringing bells did now, the book, yeah. I think, yeah. Well, I chose my title, OK, so my book came out in March 2019. And I noticed it in the bookshop and I thought, we have to have Nina Stibby on. Yeah, and obviously you know what, what a great writer I am. Exactly. But also, the thing is, when I, it was very difficult to title books. Unless you've got the title right at the beginning before you start... It's very hard. You just don't, you think, what should we call it? Should we call it, you know, the Tame Gazelle or the, you know... Yeah. Just something we nearly call this podcast the Tame Gazelle. That yeah. is so well, weird. I knew, I knew you, you might. What were we going to... But Jeff came up with reasons to be cheerful and I was rather classically very sceptical about it. Uh, but we, what was it? I, didn't we have one sort of like getting better or something like that? That gets better. Yeah, yeah, getting yeah. Better all the time. Yeah, which you weren't as keen on because it's sort of evocative of Dream and things can only get better. No, no. Yeah. I more thought it was it was more self. It was a self deprecating. It wasn't. It gets better. It's something like this. It was something must, like that. Must improve. Yeah. Well. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. But see, so I didn't know what to call my book, and then I thought, and it, it, there's a little mention of Ian Jury in there, and it's 1980, and I and it came to me. This this um, single that Ian Jury had called "What a Waste." Oh, remember yeah, that single? Yeah, yeah. Such a good single. And then I thought I can't have a novel called that. And then I so I tried out on my editor. What about reasons to be cheerful? And we both said, if you call it that, you'll get on Ed and Jeff's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so we went for it, and so That's here hilarious. I am. Yeah, you were right. <laughs> I was right. It, well, we were both right. So here I am. So let's explain to our. Uh, readers um the context it's about a character called lizzie vogel yes um it's the third in a semi-autobiographical yeah, yeah. Trilogy, trilogy but we're not we it. don't necessarily need to call it a trilogy you can read book three before you oh, read, yeah. book two read them in any order in any any order uh tell us about it tell us about without giving it all away tell well us. as you said it's semi-autobiographical or sort of a bit more than that so this book is it's about lizzie vogel as you said she's a young woman she's moved away from home and started working and moved to the big city leicester she starts this job and she's working for a really horrible guy and he's a complete bastard all the time and she takes the law into her own hands and has lots of adventures and did you did that what happened to you a bit yeah how I did mean, you how did you become a novelist uh, i've always written because uh, i thought everybody always did so i always sort of wrote little stories and things from being from a very young age and then only about i don't know six years ago something like that um a woman i'd been a nanny for i left home to be a nanny because i couldn't be a student because i hadn't stayed at school i left at 15 so i hadn't got any o levels or anything so i couldn't go to uni had to be a nanny and i ended up nannying for this woman in camden this woman this wonderful woman uh, who's the editor of the london review of books mary Kay wilmer that's it and so i was her nanny she's a single mum with two amazing kids and lived in this very amazing street gloucester crescent and that was full of all the alan bennett you know, the, yeah and the lady well, alan, alan, alan bennett features and, and he yes. didn't like the way that he you portrayed him yeah, well he was really nice before the book came out and obviously i i then put him on the map you know exactly you made him what he is a bit annoyed well you see in the book in love nina the book we're talking about now is love nina which was accidentally discovered and published hence i'm now a writer um what do you say accidentally discovered well because oh, these were letters you wrote they're to your letters, sister. They're real letters and then in something like 2010 or something um it was mary Kay wilmer's birthday a big birthday and somebody wrote to me and said emailed me and said do you want to add to this book of tributes to mary Kay that we're going to give her on her birthday and i said oh lord i don't know what to say and i remembered all these letters that my sister had and i said dig dig out some letters that mention her a lot and so this letter appeared this letter that i really actually wrote in 1983 or something describing mary Kay in detail um was included in this book and and then a publisher saw it and then said are there any more and that's how what extraordinary yeah how lucky i mean what were I you doing it, at that point i was i was working in a cocktail bar in truro no i was i was i was making buns in truro and doing bits and bobs in how publishing but extraordinary. nothing particularly exciting yeah 
it was extraordinary and lucky and amazing. And of course, it's the Alan Bennett factor. Let's not, you know, let's not deny that. But um, as, as in, well, you know, he was very much in the book because right. he was very good friends with Mary Kane. He popped over for supper I every see. night, and he was very funny. And I would write about all the goings on in the household to my sister. And so even I admit the letters are funny. I mean, I don't say anything like that about any of my other books because they're so, you know, me. But they were written so long ago that I can barely remember them. And they are, it's, it's a funny book, I have to say. Is that close to where you grew up? Yeah, and you know, it's a funny thing. I was just thinking about this. It's such a th- an interesting lesson about the things you regret in life. In my, it's, it's not near where my mum now lives. And there was this... Um, a scene I remember from about two or three years ago where I walked out of my mum's house with my two kids um, and there sitting on the bench was Alan Bennett and Jonathan Miller having a chat. They sort of recognised me and we had a sort of chat, a slightly sort of uncomfortable chat. I think it was actually nearer the general election 2015, so I'd lost the election relatively recently. And I remember thinking, really, I should take a picture of my kids with them for posterity. Right. Because it's such a sort of... You know, they won't know anything about it now, but in 30, 40 years' time, they'll yeah. think it's such a sort of reach back. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, didn't I thought, felt a bit uncomfortable about it and didn't sort of ask. And then, of course, Jonathan Miller recently died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you were at Haverstock School. I was at Haverstock you? School, yeah, yeah. So, and that was very near where I lived, you know, just round in, in Camden. And so, why didn't Alan Bennett like his portrayal? I think everybody else was being very sexy and wearing eyeliner and silk shirts and having pubic lice and i just had him <laughs> making rice puddings but right. you know I, that's I, what you want alan bennett to be doing well, there are a lot it. of pubic lice around gloucester crescent in the 1980s well you you must know, them I don't know. <laughs> no i don't yeah there was a bit there was a bit but i was well, i was writing these letters to my sister i was sort of 19 or something and my sister was had stayed at home in leicester and i wasn't writing particularly truthful letters i have to be honest i was slightly gilding the lily so i'd say oh there's this guy lives across the road he's an actor you probably know him alan bennett he's in coronation street and i'd just add yeah. that little extra bit or i'd say oh this guy came round i think he had pubic lice i mean he probably didn't have pubic lice but i was just trying to sex it up yeah. but you know? were not writing them for publication no god no I, that's why they're good because they're not in there and how many of them are there hundreds and there's lots of them in this marvelous book do you feel pressure as a writer to to live up to those letters oh my god yes but what's funny is i'd written lots so when i had that book published i was probably about 50 i got my first publishing deal age 50 which is a great thing to tell people that's a reason and by the way anyone i'm not just saying this as a politician thing i mean you told me your age and nobody would quite believe it really Oh, thank you. Anyway. It's just an inspiration to you because you've just, just yeah, turned 50. Off, yeah, you've just you turned know. 50. You too could look like me. Yeah. I use this oil. On, I want to know. I want to know. It's definitely. a really nice face definitely, oil. It definitely. really works, As actually. long as it doesn't give me pubic lice. I'm no, happy. It, it, uh, it wards them off. <laughs> 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 if you just let it dribble down. But seriously, seriously, what were we saying now? Uh, 50? <laughs> No. Oh, yeah. Look, yeah. a reason to be cheerful yeah. is getting your first book deal, age Definitely. 50. I mean, I was about to be put out to grass and I get this publishing deal. Luckily, I'd written lots of other stuff. And so when Love Nina did so well and everybody loved it, I just went back to the old books that I'd written. and I'd written. You'd them. written other books? Oh, I'd written loads of stuff. Autobiography mostly. So I went back to that stuff and I, I I rewrote it in my real voice. And that's another reason to be cheerful because I'd written the other stuff. You know, I was trying, so I was sort of writing it a bit like Edna O'Brien or. And had you, know. you submitted that stuff to literary agents and yes, publishers? Yeah. And, and had they, no joy? No, I, I'd been encouraged. They hadn't said fuck off, but they'd said, you know, this is really quite good, but we don't love it enough to take a punt on it. Right, right. But, you know, do, do keep going and that kind of thing. And, um, and I kind of knew it was okay, so I did keep going. And I got some kids, and I was busy and doing surfing in Cornwall and stuff. So I just kept doing it. And then, so I, so I then rewrote it all, all these novels, in my own voice. And voila, it worked. Amazing. So another reason to be cheerful, that if you try and write in your own voice, it can sometimes really work. But isn't it interesting how, do you think it would have happened if it hadn't been for Mary Kay? No, no. It would not have happened for lots of reasons. First of all, I moved from Leicester to London the only way I could by being an au pair or a nanny. And um, I met these people. Now, 
you have to remember it was Jonathan Miller and David Gentleman and um, all these amazing uh, cultural figures. But Jonathan what, Miller also lived in that. He lived in the street. The street, right. Deborah Mogash lived in the street. Joan Thurkettle lived in the street. I mean, it's just endless. And they were all around and popping in. And what was interesting was, you know, I, for the first time, saw people who were just succeeding in the arts. And, and the, this is the biggest thing. They weren't... S- they weren't obsessed with themselves. They were interested in me. So they, they like Alan Ben is saying, what have you been up to? And so I'd say, oh, you know, I had a fight with a woman on the train because she called my sister a fat cunt. And they'd want to know about it. So they'd go, oh, what happened? What? You know, so they were fascinated with me and fascinated with each other. And, you know, it was just such a revelation. I'd come from a place where everyone was like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? I can't, what was your background? I just lived in Leicester. I mean, my mum and dad were very booky and cultural, but we'd had a bit of a riches to rags fall in the 70s. We'd been quite well off, and then my dad's business went bust because we forgot to take the Christmas decorations down one year, and that was the end of that. And um, we... What? But... No, that's a joke. Right. It's a joke, Ed. You went over my head right. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. anyway, anyway, so, yeah, so, I, you know, I very ordinary, comprehensive school, small village in Leicestershire, and it'd been great. We'd had a laugh and everything, but... I hadn't sort of seen people careless in that way. No, that's the wrong word. Carefree and interested, yeah. fascinated with the world. I'd just seen neurotic people. Oh, this has happened. Oh, my God, you know. So How suddenly to be in London, everyone sort of... It didn't matter what happened. They were interested. And they all hated Thatcher. But maybe they had security as well. They had of the course. security to be carefree. Oh, yeah, God, we're talking to a politician. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there is running water in Leicester. <laughs> um, anyway, but yes, they did have the security, and that's true, and they had that sort of confidence that you get when you're very middle class. And that, But, you know, I came from quite middle class background as well, but I hadn't, you know, I, it was just interesting to see them all, you know, talking about ideas. And what does your family think about this sort of slightly extraordinary story? Oh, they're thrilled. Yeah, they're really happy with it. And um, since the Love Nina stuff, which was much more London-based and about Alan Bennett, um, I've written really about them, uh, albeit novelised. But I have very much written about my own family and my own experiences. So, Nina, give us a reason to be cheerful to finish with. After all, you've written a book called Reasons to be Cheerful, so you must have some. Yeah, but only to get on this show, as you know. But um, mission accomplished. Uh, uh, My reason to be cheerful at the moment is my dog, and uh, she's always very cheerful. What's she called? She's called Peggy. And what sort of dog is she? She's she's a Spaniel cross. Is she she a good girl? She's she's a good girl. I don't like it when you use that dog voice, can I just say? Why? I don't know. You love dogs, don't you? I really love dogs. I also love... I find the voice thing really kind of creeps me out. This is because she's never been a dog owner. You have a voice that you speak to your dog in. That's that You don't speak to anybody else. It creeps me out. It's because you're not a dog. Yeah, you need a dog. I'm not a dog. That is correct. (laughs) My dog's called Peggy. And yeah, I, I want to do better. the dog voice, but you won't that's let me better. do it. That's I think better. you should do, don't that's, let him stop you. I feel like I shouldn't you. dog voice shame you. Well, you have true. done that. I think yeah. he's, uh, he's gone off dog since one of his helpers got bitten. They did. In fact, I spoke to them the other day. I mean, honestly, the poor woman, I mean, she, she actually she took, put her hand she took my the... phone call. I mean, you know, I think I said this to you, didn't I? That she, she but she's still speaking to she's me. But I mean, she it. hasn't fully recovered. But actually, you... I knew I needed to stop canvassing and it was going to be a bad election when on the last door I knocked on, I nearly got attacked by somebody's dog, which was the first time it happened in the campaign. It was so late at night that they thought it was an intruder. So it was like, (laughs) "Okay, Rover, go. Get a dog and take the dog canvassing. That's the way. We've got a sort of weekend dog. Have you? Yeah, we we, we saw occasionally dog sit, and I think that's enough. Yeah, it's it's a good way. Yeah, Dylan, he's very cute, but I won't do the dog voice. Can I use the name Dylan for my next fictional dog? Definitely. I'm going to do that because I love the name Dylan. I might have it. He's really cute. I'll I'll show you a picture. Yeah, please. Yeah, Nina Stibby, you are a reason to be cheerful. Oh, thank Um, you. Your book is reason to be cheerful. Available now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. At one programming note, we have a live show. We're back out on the road at King's Place in London on Thursday the 12th of March. 
It's going to be about the climate emergency. Tickets are selling fast. You can go to our website to buy tickets or click a link in the description of this week's show. Please do come along. It's going to be a great show and there will be uh, more information uh, nearer the time. Jeff, as I said at the outset, not back next week. So... Uh, I can hatch some plans for the overthrow of the Jeffocracy, and I'll, there'll soon be more information uh, on that uh, next week. It's been coming for months, and I think it might now be the time. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Deborah Hargreaves, Ewan McGahey, and Nina Stibby. Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research by Joe Kenyon and Joel Pierce. Ed Seed did our music. James Deacon did our idents. Gail Lofthouse was our announcer. And our artwork was not done by Emily Power, nor was it done by Richard Meads. Uh, Richard Meads is 40 on the 16th of January. He and his wife listened to, have been listening to the podcast for a couple of years and often listen uh, on their commutes. So the artwork was not done by him, but happy birthday, uh, Richard. The artwork was, in fact, done by Henry Cull. He's gone AWOL. I'm home alone. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful.